your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1 and verse 1. Today we, we begin a, our study of the book of Philippians. We introduced it last week, if you're here, considering from Acts 16 how this church began. It's the glorious work of Christ and His faithfulness to build His church as He has declared. And, and now we set our hearts on this book in which Paul has wrote to this beloved church here the Church of Philippians. And so I invite you to consider a people for Christ as we work our way in the coming weeks through this wonderful book. So Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Please hear now the Word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word that we can consider this morning. We thank you that you will help us. We trust through your spirit who is here even now as we begin to understand who you are through this book. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and open our hearts that we might hear your word and that we might became, become more like Christ through it. We pray for those who are here this morning who do not know you and who have yet to receive the grace in which we read about here in verse 2, and the peace in which you offer us through that grace. We pray, Father, that you would soften their hearts, that they too might believe in Jesus and receive the grace and peace which he has purchased for them through his blood and broken body on the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a great hero of mine is a man named George Whitfield. If I, if I could preach like anybody... Um, I would like to preach like Whitfield. Uh, he was an incredible preacher in his day in the 18th century. He was used by God to bring about uh, America's great awakening. He would out, go out and preach in the fields and thousands of people would flock to him. Um, perhaps Whitfield has preached to more people than any other person in the world, at least up to his day, certainly would be true. In fact, people would come to hear Whitfield. No, no building could hold him. They would come by the tens of thousands to hear him preach. And they would walk for hours and hours. Sometimes they would get up even at 4 a.m. And you would have whole villages emptying at 4 or 5 a.m. As they all got up to walk miles and miles because they heard that Whitfield was nearby to preach. Well, before he came to America and his popularity was rising in Edinburgh, where he was from... Uh, one person in particular got up to hear him, it was a man named David Hume, who happened to be a Scottish philosopher and a skeptic to Christianity. Well, one of Hume's neighbors saw him get up at 5 a.m. to go walk and to hear Whitfield, and he asked Hume, he was somewhat surprised, and he said to him, uh, Dr. Hume, I thought you did not believe in the gospel. In which Hume replied, I do not, but he does. I think Paul like Whitfield, believed the gospel. And I think it is very clear in his life, very evident from this letter, that here's a man who has been captured by the gospel. A man who is in love with Jesus Christ and willing to lay down everything for him. You even see that in the fact that this letter that he's writing to the Philippians is written from jail where Paul is now imprisoned and he, as we'll see later on in chapter 1, may be awaiting his execution. And yet somehow he writes a letter from prison with the gleam of the executioner's sword in the corner of his eye, uh, writing a letter full of joy and comfort in order to encourage this beloved church of the Philippians. It is, we see here a man who's been captured by Christ as he seeks to bless others, as he seeks to fill them with joy and comfort. In fact, I would say that he not only filled the Philippians with joy, but he has filled many people with joy through this book. Thousands and tens of thousands, millions of people have incre been incredibly blessed by the book of Philippians. In fact, if you think about all the verses that we cherish from this book, it's perhaps more verses from the book of Philippians than, than maybe any other book. You think about Philippians in verse 
verse 6 of chapter 1 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or we, we know in Philippians that Paul says, for me to live is, uh, is Christ, to die is gain. And then there in chapter 2, he talks about that we should have the mind of Christ. And he goes on to explain that Jesus, who in the form of God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's there in Philippians. And then we go later on in Philippians and we read that great theological verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, we have a verse that's very important in our home. Do all things without complaining or grumbling, right? And then we get into chapter 3 and we see that Paul says that famous phrase, forgetting what lies behind and straining on towards what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which Christ has claimed me. And then we get later on in chapter 3, we read our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. And then in chapter 4, we hear rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, and later on he declares, be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We read that he says, whatever is noble and pure and praiseworthy, think about these things. We hear that he says, I have learned a secret to be content in all things. He tells us in this book that God will meet all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. We read here in chapter 4 and verse 13 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What a wonderful and glorious book this is. What a great joy that it is. How has impacted so many people's lives as I testified to you last week. I think perhaps other than the Gospel of Luke, no book has ever changed me more than the book of Philippians. I am a different person because of it, because the apostle wrote it. And it has not only impacted my life, but so many people's lives as we have cherished these verses. But my fear is, is what we do is we find these verses and we, they become so familiar to us, we pull them out of their context and they become like little proverbs. And we forget they're actually written from a man in prison to a church who needs encouragement, we forget there's a context. For instance, that, that famous verse in Philippians 4.13, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How many ways have that been implied and applied in people's lives? Right? People stand in the batter's box and think, I could hit this ball because I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You sit down before an exam that which you have not prepared for, and you think, oh, it's okay. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? It's 2 a.m. and you're behind the wheel and you're falling asleep, but you say, I don't care. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We apply it to all sorts of different areas in our lives. And I'm not sure Paul had in mind taking an exam or hitting a fastball. In fact, you know what he's writing about immediately preceding that. He says, I'm starving, but I'm content because I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even starve to death. And so I think it's helpful for us if we want to truly understand what God wants us to know from these passages, to understand them from their context. And so we're going to work our way through these 104 verses over the coming weeks. It will take us through the rest of winter and spring and, and up, till, up to summer. We'll be considering this wonderful book. And we, we saw how the church was planted last week in 51 AD. Paul, for the first time, took the gospel away from the Middle East or Asia Minor, and he went over to Europe. And he crossed the Aegean Sea, and there he went to a, a Roman colony called Philippi in, in modern-day Greece. And, and he presented the gospel to a businesswoman and a and a demonized slave girl and a jailer and his family and and the church was formed in fact he was there for about three weeks and then on his way but he left behind in philippi a wonderful glorious church in fact the church was so impacted by the apostle that as soon as he left they began to support him so he went down or south to thessalonica and philip the philippians are already giving him money and supporting him and entering into a partnership with him and they support him year after year after year in fact paul would write it to the Corinthian church about how much he has received from the Philippian church. And he would write over and over again about the Philippians helping him accomplish the gospel. And over the years, he would come back and visit Philippi maybe two more times. And eventually, about 10 years after the church started, as I mentioned, he's imprisoned in Rome in about 61 AD. And, and the church hears about it. And they think our, our, our first pastor, our church planner, he is in prison. We need to help him. And so they gather together a sum of money and they give it to their pastor, Epaphras. 
Epaphroditus, and he sails for Rome to go there and to encourage this missionary and to support him. And he almost dies in doing so. And he finally makes it to Rome, and Paul gets so distraught that he almost dies. He sends Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. But before he does, he dictates this letter. He says, give this to them that they may be encouraged, that they might know of my love. And he informs them of their future plan, his future plans and challenges them to fight sin and warns them against false teachers and thanks them for their support and encourages them in their persecution. But in all these things, throughout all these, these things that Paul writes, he continually goes back to Christ. He says it's all about Christ, whether he's warning them or encouraging them or thanking them. It, it all has to do with their relationship with Jesus. And we're going to see Jesus throughout this book. In fact, he's mentioned... 50 different times in 104 verses. It's all about Christ, Paul says. And so we're just going to look at these two verses here in the beginning, this introduction. And you already see Christ is all over it, isn't he? This would be a common introduction. It's how they would begin letters. It would be from so-and-so to so-and-so, and then some greeting. It's exactly what Paul does. He follows that template of his day. But you understand he, he makes it more than that. He he, he uh, puts within that simple greeting these great and wonderful truths about Jesus Christ. And so simply consider with me this morning that this letter is from the servants of Christ Jesus and it is to the saints uh, in Christ Jesus and it is because of the grace through Christ Jesus. So first of all, think about who it's from. It's from the servants of Christ Jesus. We see in verse 1, Paul and Timothy. Now we, we know Paul, this Pharisee who God has called for himself and become a great apostle. And we, we perhaps know Timothy. It would be Paul's um, protege. He would call him my true son in the faith. In fact, six of Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, he would have Timothy li- listed in the introduction. Timothy meant a great deal to Paul. In fact, Paul would pick up Timothy right before they ended up in Philippi. So the Philippians would know Timothy well uh, as well. In fact, Paul hopes to send Timothy to them. Look over in chapter 2 and verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Verse 20, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And so I'm going to send Timothy to you, and he includes Timothy in this introduction. Though the letter is clearly from Paul, he, Timothy is perhaps his secretary, perhaps the one who is recording it as Paul dictates this letter to him. Paul and Timothy... But what I find particularly interesting is not just their names, but the titles in which they are given. You see that? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now just think about that for a moment, about who actually is writing this letter. It is Paul the Apostle. It is Paul who God has called for himself miraculously. Jesus would appear to him from heaven there on the Damascus Road. Paul, who would write 13 books in the New Testament. Paul, perhaps more than any person other to, ever to live except Jesus Christ, has impacted the kingdom of God greater. It's Paul the Apostle. But he does not call himself an apostle, does he? He says here, servants of Christ Jesus. This was unusual for Paul. Paul would almost in every letter that he would write introduce himself as Paul the Apostle. In fact, sometimes he would take pages to defend his apostolic authority as to why they should submit to his teaching because he is apostle. But it is in this letter alone that he has this solitary title and that of servant. Or perhaps if you have a footnote, you'll see it, it may be better translated slave of Christ Jesus. It reminds me of the song we just sang. Take my life. I'm set apart for you, we sing. I belong to you. And he says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. You think, I think the reason why he doesn't introduce himself as an apostle, he just doesn't need to uh, flaunt his authority in this relationship. They love him. He doesn't need to say, now I'm an apostle. You all have to well behave, be well behaved and listen to what I say. He loves them. They love him. There's no need to do that. When I write a, a letter, I do not sign it, Pastor Stephen. Right? <laughs> I don't need to, uh, to demonstrate any authority in life. There's a relationship of love and mutual affection. And I think the same is here for Paul and this church. In fact, I think he loves this church perhaps more than any church he ever started, as we shall see throughout this letter. He is his slave. I'm Christ's slave, he says. I'm his servant. That is, he is totally devoted to Jesus. He is at his disposal. He is owned by Jesus. He is Christ's slave. 
And I emphasize that because I think Christianity in our land and in our day has become quite different. I think Christianity often is, is packaged not in, would you like to be the servant of Jesus Christ? Would you like to enter a relationship with Christ so that you might become his slave? No, I'm not sure that's how we talk about Christianity much. In fact, I don't think often that we in our land live lives of servants of God, but we rather think that he is our servant. That, that he exists to follow me around and enhance my life and make everything easy and, 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 and nice and help me get from A to B. And when I get there, he's there to help me find a parking lot. And he's there to, to help me in my health issues and my financial issues. And, and he exists to serve me. So I have this relationship with Jesus and it's very nice because Jesus has become my servant. It seems to me that's the way Christianity is spoken of quite often in our day. It is, it has become not your will, but my will be done. And you exist to accomplish my will. We seem to have repackaged Jesus. This is why much preaching in our country is constantly gives you a steady diet of the victorious Christian life. And, and we ought to rejoice in all that which Christ has given us. And what he has given us through his death is incalculable in its worth. And we ought to rejoice in that. But I ask you, where is the declaration that we are to be on mission with Jesus, where is the call to deny ourselves and to take up our cross daily, to deny ourselves and to be Jesus' servant? See, the apostle understood this. I am his slave, he said. I'm his slave. I have been bought by Jesus. And whether I'm in prison or whether I'm free, I will do my service for his glory. And his kingdom. I feel like we have domesticated the gospel. I feel like we say, I want enough Jesus to make me happy, but not enough to make me transformed. I want enough Jesus to get what I want, not, a, not so much that I have to hate covetousness or lust or pride or greed. I want enough Jesus to make my life easy, but not so much that I have to love my enemies. I want enough Jesus so my family will be secure and my children well behaved, but I don't want so much that my ambitions will be challenged and my giving enlarged. I want enough Jesus so that I will be forgiven by people when I sin against them, but I do not want so much that I have to forgive them when they sin against me. I want enough Jesus so that I could have emotional experiences on Sunday morning, but not so much where I live a changed life on Monday afternoon. We have domesticated Christianity. We put verses on our mints. We put a bow on the cross. We put a flower in Jesus' hair, and we have made him our servant. And I want you to understand this letter is written from a man who may die because he loves Jesus to a young and scared church who is only growing more poor because they love Jesus and is only being more persecuted because they love Jesus and they understand what it means to be his slave. They live for Jesus. They are his people. And before us, I just warn you, before we spend the weeks in this book, is a wonderful confrontation to our domesticated gospel. It will challenge us, I hope. It will move us, I hope. We are owned by him. Therefore, it is not our will, but it is his will for our career and our possessions and our family and our children and our thoughts and our heart and our church. It is your will be done. Our brother Jonathan Edwards understood this. He who partnered with George Whitfield to, through God, bring about the great awakenings, wrote in his diary on January 12, 1722. He said, I have been before God, and I have given myself all that I am to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. Neither I, have I any right to this body or its members, no right to this tongue, these hands, these feet, no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell, or this taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. 
It is echoed in the words of George Mueller, who in the 19th century cared for thousands of orphans in England. When he was asked the secret of his ministry, he would say, there was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to this world, its approval or censor. Died to the approval or blame of my friends. It is an echo of the words of the Apostle Paul, who gathered the Ephesian elders together in Acts 20 on his way to Jerusalem, where he had been told by prophecy that he would be imprisoned and not know what awaited him, he would declare to them in light of that prophecy, I do not account my life as any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I ask you this morning, Christian, are you his slave? Do you belong to him? Has he bought you? And, and if so, what evidence do you have to point to this reality? If you say, yes, of course, Pastor, I'm, I'm his servant, I'm his slave. How do you know? Do you see that in your life? I hope you do. I hope you see it in your will, in your dreams, your ambitions, your life. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I would simply like to ask you this morning to forgive us Christians if we have in any way presented to you the gospel as a means to only get things. If we tell you the gospel is how you get stuff and that's it, we have erred and we have not told you the full gospel. The gospel is a surrender of your life to your maker. It is a bowing of the knee to your king. And it is a servitude, a slavery to him who is both good and gracious. That's the gospel. So know it full well. You do get more than you could ever imagine. Eternal life forgiveness. You get adopted into God's family. But you must first put your faith in him. Repent of your sins and give him everything. I would encourage you to do so. I know of no better life than this slavery to Jesus. But God help us to do it better at church. We struggle with this. So did the Philippian church. In fact, notice chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, a slave. That's what Jesus did to the Father. I have laid down my will for the Father's will, the Lord has said. What did this lead to? Read on, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, we as Christians believe that Jesus has died upon the cross, not because he had sinned, but because we have sinned. And there he took all of our sin upon us, upon him rather, took the wrath of God on him that we, our sin might be paid for through his substitution. Three days later, if you read on, you see that he has been raised from the dead. And we believe that we are saved through faith in Christ because of his work. But I want you to understand that's not where we stop. We not only say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done, as he says in there in verse 5, you have this mind also, which is in Christ Jesus. Your mind should be like Jesus. So he is not only our Savior, he is our example as to how we are to live that life of glorious servitude to our good and glorious God. This letter is from servants of Christ Jesus. Notice secondly who it is to. It is to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus with the overseers who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons to the saints in Christ Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it, this letter, I think, because you almost expect him to say St. Paul to the, to the Christians in Philippi? I don't know. But it's interesting that he doesn't, he says, a servant Paul, to who? To the saints in Christ Jesus. He looks at the, the, the Philippians and doesn't call them Philippians, but he calls them saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. They're saints. I think that's incredibly amazing to me, especially in light of, of what we consider about saints in our day. There's a lot of confusion as to what a saint is. I think one little boy was asked what a saint was, and he said, they're dead people that you put up on the church wall to keep the light from coming through. I'm not sure that's exactly right. Sometimes we use saint as uh, some form of elite Christian. We think about St. Paul or St. Barnabas 
or someone very godly. You know, my, my Aunt Betsy was a real saint, we might say. And we think about saints are those exemplary people, those really good Christians. Like if you love Jesus enough, you get this wonderful title of saint. And we've had this idea for hundreds of years, and we get it largely through the Roman Catholic system, which have a whole system of making people saints. And the idea in that system is that if someone loves Jesus enough or sacrifices enough or is insightful enough, they, they, get, they get the title saint. And what happens when you become a saint is that you are now able to receive prayers. Because you are so good, people can pray to you. And so God may not be predisposed towards blessing you, but he is predisposed towards blessing St. Freddy. And so if you pray to St. Freddy, Freddy will go to God on your behalf, is the idea that he has accumulated so much goodness that he can now sway God, who was at first glance not really willing to give you what you wanted, but now that St. Freddy has asked, okay, now he will give it to you. And so they have this whole system, and then each saint has a little domain, right? You have saints in charge of the interstate highways, and you pray to this saint who evidently likes travel, and he, he helps you out by talking to God. On your behalf. In fact, we, were, as you, I mentioned last week, we we're trying to sell our home, and and we uh, asked uh, friends of ours if they would pray for the sale of our home. And, and we know they're not believers, but we are hoping to engage in a spiritual conversation with them. And and the response we got was, well, well, don't pray. What you should do is you should get a statue of of Saint Saint, you know, I don't know, um, Saint Billy, whatever. And you, and you, and you go to your house and you dig a hole in the ground and you put, put St. Billy in the ground there at your house and cover it up. And then, I, I don't know how this works. I don't know if St. Billy is so moved that you buried his likeness that he's going to therefore go talk to God on your behalf, but that's supposed to sell your house. Well, can we just agree that that's nonsense? Right? That's stupid. I don't know if I, is that, can I say that? That's dumb, isn't it? It's certainly not biblical. Maybe that's the best way to put it. It's unbiblical. You don't want to know what a saint is. Well, a saint is simply the normal word that the Bible uses to describe Christians. In fact, Christians are much more described with the title saint than they are Christian. In fact, God will tell Ananias that he's to lay on hands on Saul to restore his blindness, sight from his blindness. And Ananias is someone intimidated by this, because Saul's been running around killing Christians, and he didn't really want to meet him, especially when he regained his sight. And so he told the Lord about it. He said, I'm a little intimidated by this. He said to the Lord in Acts 19, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. A little bit later in Acts 19, the Bible says, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. In fact, Paul would write of the Corinthian church, and if you know anything about the Corinthian church, th- there was not a lot of saintly activity going on, if I could put it that way. They, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were ha- practicing sexual immorality. They were, uh, everyone was speaking in tongues at the same time, evidently. And it, it, in fact, Paul said of, of the Corinthians, you guys are so bad, the pagans wouldn't even do the things you do. It's like the church gone wild. It was crazy church. And you know how he introduces his letter? He says, he writes to them, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. And so I want to tell you this morning that all Christians are saints. That's the Christian title. They're, they're all saints. We're all saints. I appreciate the story about Harry Ironside, that great biblical exegete of old, was traveling by train across country. And he was spending some time with nuns who happened to be on this multiple day uh, train ride. And, and I don't know if he was poking fun with them or, or what he was doing, but they were, they liked him because they liked his writings. And he said, well, hey, ladies, would you, have you ever met a saint before? And they were somewhat perplexed and confused and said, no, we've never, never met a saint before. And he says, would you like to meet one? And they got all excited. And, and then he disappointed them by saying, I'm a saint. I'm Saint Harry. Right. And then he pointed to them in Philippians 1.1 and showed them. Uh, these truths. And so, so uh, you were all saints. I'm St. Saint Stephen. Good morning. Um, right? There's St. Ben. Right? It's good to see you. Uh, there's St. Stephen. Another one. All right, that's good. I don't, I uh, there's St. Butch. We're all saints. Right? In fact, I'm going to start signing my emails that way. I don't know. St. Saint, Saint Stephen, right? Maybe that will provoke some... Maybe you should do that. We'll provoke some conversation about this. So what does it mean? Well, saint is simply the noun form of the adjective holy. Holy means set apart. 
consecrated, dedicated. It really means, saint really means holy ones. It means those who are the, the holy ones. You say, well, how, how is it that I'm called the holy one? Well, look again in, in the end of verse 1. All the saints, and notice where they are. They are in Christ Jesus. You want to know how it is you're a saint? It is because you are united to Jesus Christ by faith. This is unique to Christianity. A, a Buddhist would never speak of being in Buddha, or a Muslim would never speak of being in Muhammad or Allah or a Mormon would never speak of being in jo- um, jo- um, Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. They may follow their teaching, but they're never united to them as you and I are. The Bible says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, yet Christ lives in me. We've been united to Christ, and what that means is all that Christ has done has now been credited to you. It's been counted in your account, and so God sees you as a saint because you are in Christ Jesus. You are seen as holy because of Christ. But what that means for us is because God calls us holy and thinks of us as saints, we should probably act like it, right? We should probably act like we're set apart, like we are, if I could use the word saintly. We should act that way. We should be different. And I know we look in our world and it just seems to be going darker and darker by day. Um, because it gives itself more and more to rejection of truth and into sin. And, and uh, sometimes we despair, but I think that presents incredible opportunities for us Christians. By the way, this is promised to us. It should not take us by surprise. But it gives us an opportunity for our light to shine even brighter with the contrast of the darkness around us. Let's, let's act like what we are. He writes to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. But then, he, he, so the letter's written to the, the whole church, all the saints. You notice that? But then he identifies church leaders at the end of verse 2 with the overseers and deacons. And so he tells us that there are offices in the church. In fact, the Bible tells us there are two offices in the church. The, the office of elder or overseer or pastor, and then the office of deacon, which means we don't get to decide how a church is run. God has decided it for us. We have elders and deacons not because we think it's simply a good idea or we're creative. We do so because the Bible tells us the church is to have elders and deacons. It has those two offices. It's not to have more than two offices. You won't find anywhere in the Bible of bishops um, ruling over a series of churches or archbishops or popes or monsignors or whatever. You won't find any of those titles in Scripture. Nor, will you, nor, nor should we go less than what God has and, and not have any officers in the church that will just uh, shun any authority in God's community. And people like to do that. And what they're doing is they're shunning God's plan for the church. I think, in fact, I'm not even sure it's a church. It may be a collection of Christians. But it doesn't seem to have this mark of the church. That is, that the church is led by elders and it is served by deacons. And we talk we saw our deacons last week, if you were here with us, and we had the great privilege of installing new deacons and praying for the current deacons and thanking former deacons. And when we did so, we considered briefly from Acts chapter 6, what, is, what are the roles of deacons? And we saw that deacons are given to the church to care for the people of the church, that they're to meet needs. Every member of this church has been assigned a deacon. Um, and the deacons come and they meet those needs. We also saw that, that deacons are used by God to, to unite the body of God. That when there was disunity in the church, the solution was deacons. The third thing we saw is that the deacons are given to the church to support the ministry of the word of God. That is, they are to take things off the, the, the elders' plate in order that the elders can primarily give themselves to teaching, as the Bible tells us. And so we, we rejoiced in what God has. God has given us these, these men and these women to serve us as deacons. And in fact, we're going to take Lord's Supper in a moment. And the deacons have prepared this for us. And there are people praying right now as there are every Sunday morning gathered aside to pray for our services. That's organized by the deacons. When you walked into this building, you were, you were perhaps greeted or handed a, a bulletin. That too is organized by our deacons. And they serve us individually and serve us corporately in many different ways. And we praise the Lord for them. Amen, indeed. Um, But what I want to just take a a moment in the time that we have left, we're not going to spend much time on on my last point, but I want to talk to you about elders. I want to talk to you about the overseers as we see Paul explain it here. And we're just going to kind of uh, take this text and spring off a little bit and and consider uh, the four responsibilities of elders for the church. And the reason I want to do this is I've had at least three conversations with people over the last two months asking questions about what are elders and what are they supposed to do and why do we have them. And and other people have had conversations and told me about those conversations. And so I thought since the Bible's mentioning it, it would be a good opportunity just to pause for a moment and consider the role that God has given elders in the church. So first of all, I would suggest to you that elders 
elders lead under the authority of Christ. And I have a number of verses. We're going to put them all up on the board. If you guys should just put those up there. You see um, in Acts chapter 20, Paul called the elders of the church and he said to them, pray careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you. And here's the word overseers. So you see those two words are used interchangeably. He's called the elders and he said the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So those words refer to the same group of people, the same office in the church. And when we talk about overseers, he's talking about those who oversee the church, those who have that oversight responsibility. It's even more clear there in 1 Timothy when he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And so elders are given to the church to provide leadership and they should rule. Or 1 Peter 5, so I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And so the elders are the primary leaders in the church. It's mentioned over 70 times in the New Testament. At the very beginning of the church in Acts, and when Paul's planting churches, you know what the Bible says in Acts 14? He is putting, appointing elders in every church from the very beginning. You see in Acts 15, the church of Jerusalem gathered together. They gathered together with the apostles and the elders. By the way, the word elder when referring to a church office is never used in the singular in the Bible except when listing their qualifications. What that means is that we never had a single church in Scripture that was led by a single man. And I've tried to do that, and it is terribly difficult, both for the church and for me, and it is not God's model. This is why we have a plurality of elders, because God has shown us this model that we are to to lead together, holding each other accountable and supporting one another as we provide leadership to the church and set vision for the church and direction for the church. And what this means practically is that the elders, when they look at the Word of God and they see what type of church we're supposed to be, we, 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 we try to pray about and think and and and. and and, uh, and speak with others about how it is that we can do what God has called us to do in the context in which we live. So we, we know that God has left the church here to make disciples for his glory. Well, what does that look like in Hamilton Baptist Church? Well, your elders pray about that and consider that and, and talk to one another about that. We think what that means is us getting more involved in reaching outside of our community to our neighbors and the nations. And we believe that means that we become less reliant upon programs and schedules and rather use our gifts and become uh, communities amongst one another and support one another as we seek to move ourselves forward in making disciples. And the elders are given this responsibility of leadership. You see, they're given it by the Spirit of God. If you'll put those verses back up, just real quick. You look in Acts chapter 20, look at the end of that verse. It says, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. What that means is elders don't campaign. They're not running for office, right? Praise the Lord. We got enough of that around here. And so, what elders, they're appointed by the Holy Spirit. They're called. They feel that burden upon their heart. And other people recognize that. And the Holy Spirit appoints them. And you look there at the end of verse 28 of Acts, which he, they're to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. They're not only appointed by the spirit of God, they're accountable to the son of God. The son of God has bought the church, died for the church. And then he has said to the elders, now you care for those I died to purchase. And it is a massive weight and responsibility. It's a wonderful weight and responsibility, but it is heavy. This is why your elders, when we meet together, spend at least over an hour in prayer calling for help and guidance and wisdom and asking God to work in our midst because we know we are accountable to the Son of God to lead those which he has purchased by his own blood. They, they lead under the authority of Christ. Secondly, you'll see that the elders are going to shepherd the people of Christ. You put those verses on the screen for me. Elders shepherd the people of Christ. You see there, still in Acts 20, verse 28, they're to care for the church of God. In 1 Peter 5, 1, he says, shepherd the flock of God. That word shepherd is the same word pastor. So pastor and shepherd are the same word. He could have very easily translated that. Pastor, the flock of God. So we know the term pastor is used interchangeably with elder and overseer and pastor. All refers to the same office that they are, they are to, to um, care for the people, to shepherd them. So all your elders are pastors. And I know we like to divide those pastors, pastors over here and elders over here. I'm an elder and a pastor, and so are all your elders. They're pastors, they're shepherds. Now we have some elders who go to seminary and, and, and pursue this ministry as a vocation, as I do. 
We have other elders who have not been to seminary, but they're, they're still nevertheless, they are here to pastor you. They're here to shepherd you. They care and encourage and love and support and assist you. And I think these two things go hand in hand. Leading the people of God and, and caring for the people of God work together. Because if you try to, to govern a church without caring for a church, that is going to go bad, isn't it? And so if all the elders did was they, they have their meetings and then they come before the church and tell you what they have decided to do, that is not going to go well if it is not done in a context of shepherding and care and love and support. The elders are not simply a governing board to the church. They are the church's pastors who care for them in order that they might lead them. The third responsibility of an elder is to teach the word of Christ teach the word of Christ. Perhaps this is our primary responsibility. You'll see there in 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Look at Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who are they? Those who spoke the word of God to you. And so the primary responsibility of elders is to be your teachers. Therefore, elders must know the word. They must know it. They must study it. They memorize it. They apply it. When you come and ask them questions, they do not say, well, I think so-and-so. They say, well, the Bible says so-and-so. They bring you to the Word. They give you the Word. They know the Word. You have issues, practical issues, marriage or sexuality or issues on racism or life after death or gender issues or cultural issues. They are able to take you to the Word and show you the Word. And I think this is increasingly important because I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems in our land the Word is getting diminished and diminished in the churches. You want to grow a church these days, what you do is you get a rock band and a fog machine and you hand out lattes as people come in and you tell them about cultural events and maybe you open the Bible somewhere in there. Right? They don't give the word. They don't teach the word. I'll tell you that the sheep do not necessarily need to be petted. Right? I used to raise sheep. You did not want to pet them. Right? They want to be fed. They want to be fed. Elders are given to the church to feed the church. In fact, do you think Paul takes this seriously? Look in 2 Timothy, the last letter he wrote on his, uh, when he knew he was going to die, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, to preach the word. That's what they're to do. They're to preach the word. So they must know the word, but that also means they must be able to communicate the word. Right? They have to have that gift, that ability. And so when the Bible lays out all the qualifications for the elders, all of them are moral, except there's one competency qualification. They're able to teach. They have to be able to teach. Uh, So I I don't know if you've ever met people who know the Bible backwards and forwards. And when they tell you about it, you have no idea what they're talking about. They're just confusing. And, And this is what separates elders from other godly men. These Not only do they know the word, but they actually know how to teach the word, to communicate the word. Maybe, maybe you've sat under a sermon where, where it was like the most powerful sleep aid you've ever encountered. Have you ever, like you felt like the life was being sucked out of you, you're entering a coma, hopefully it's not happening right now, right? right? But, you know, some people don't know how to communicate God's word. Now, we don't have to be Billy Graham. Some people, all elders are not going to be preachers. Some will be teachers in Sunday school or counselors or they'll, they'll be disciplers. In fact, we're encouraging all of our elders to be in one-on-one discipleship relationships, bringing up younger men in the Lord or, or peers in the Lord and pouring into them. They need to be able to communicate the word. They also need to defend the word. Look at Titus. He says there, he must hold firm to the trust worthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. I don't know if you realize, but there are people who claim the name of Christ and make their living by contradicting truth. Your elders are the defenders of truth in this church. They are your primary defenders of truth. It is a massive responsibility that God has given us, but a glorious one. Let me consider lastly, um, number four, the elders are to model the character of Christ. Hebrews 13, 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Elders are not perfect. Elders sin. Elders make bad decisions. 
but you want men who are following after Jesus. And like Paul can say to you, follow me while I follow Christ. You want men who are able to disciple you and to teach you what it means to be a husband and a, and a father and a church member and a follower of Christ. And this is why the Bible lists these qualifications for them. It talks about their personal life. They have to be self-controlled, wise, gentle, sacrificial, humble, patient, honest, disciplined. It talks about their family life. They have to pastor their family first. That means that they are committed to their wife. Their children honor them. They relational life. They need to be kind and hospitable and not have favoritism. Their spiritual life. They need to make disciples, love the word, pray, seek godliness. This is what God calls them to do, to lead under the authority of Christ and to shepherd the body of Christ and to teach the word of Christ and to model the character of Christ. And we have uh, elders in this church. There are currently four of us. There is me and there are three other elders. And I just want to share just for a moment what they do that you are unaware of, perhaps. That these men toil late in the night with me. That we pray together extensively. These men who have families they love and demanding jobs. Most of them, who, who some of them have been on the road at 5 a.m. that morning, will gather together every third Thursday for three to four hours, much of it crying out to Jesus to help us and to help our church and searching his word as how we can lead this church and considering people individually as how we can care for them and, and working hard as to how we can protect this church in addition to their countless other ministries where they teach Sunday school classes and disciple individuals one-on-one and, and chair search committees and oversee ministries in a, as they also attempt to do their job and to care for their family. And the amazing thing is that they want to do this. I mean, I get paid to do it. They want to do it. They love to do it because they love the church. They love you. This is why they do it. In fact, the Bible says that if anyone aspires to be an elder, he aspires to be a good thing. You want them to desire this ministry. It'd be like if I was going on a date with a legger and I'm thinking, oh, nuts, it's date night. All right, let's just get this over with, right? She would not feel esteemed, would she? You wouldn't feel loved. She wants me to say, hallelujah, it's date night, right? No more diapers or vomit to clean up. This is great. We go be by ourselves. And my eagerness to be alone with her demonstrates my love for her. And I'm telling you, the elders love to do the work they do. The pastor, you and shepherd you. In fact, one last verse I just want to show you. If you'll put that up in Hebrews chapter 13 and, and verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give, have to give an account. Let them do this with, what's that word? Joy. And not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. In other words, if you beat down your elders, you are not gaining anything. It is not to your advantage for them to do this out of duty, not delight. You want them to want to have this job. And I, so I simply would like to say, so we're going to go to Lord's Supper in a moment. Um, that uh, I've been here for a year now, just over a year. And, and you need to hear, first of all, that I would not be your pastor if there were not elders in this church, it wouldn't have come. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that alone anymore. It's, I'm not strong enough. I want you also to know that I have perhaps never been more encouraged and supported in the 14 years of ministry than I have been these, this past year by these men. I am closer to Christ because of my fellow elders. And I want to say publicly, men, I love you and I thank you desperately for what you have done for me and what you have poured into me. I appreciate you so much. And I praise the Lord for them. I mentioned there are four of us. Before I came, there were seven. We're currently looking for an associate pastor who we pray will serve as an elder, um, one who will oversee our children and student ministries. But we think the church would be well served if there were additional elders. And so your elders have been praying for this and, and asking God to help us and considering different men. And we would like to present to you this morning two additional individuals who we would like to um, uh, present before you as candidates for elders. We would like to present to you Craig Sweeney 
and John Clemens. Um, We're very happy and excited to do so. We have uh, developed a process as to how to go through appointing elders. And we have examined these men individually, their theology and their biblical competency. We have um, taught them what we believe the Bible teaches is the responsibility of elders. Spent some time pouring into them. And we have examined their qualifications, including interviewing their wives, as we look at the qualifications of scriptures. And now we want to present them to you. Our hope is that you will pray for them and pray for our church as God may move them to serve you in this capacity. We also want to give you this next month as you look at their lives in relation to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You might want to write those down. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 list the qualifications of an elder. We ask you to, what you know about their lives, do they line up with that? If you have any concerns with them, we ask that you would speak to an elder your concern during the next month, and you would not do it anonymously. You do it over email, phone call, face-to-face, but just so that we know who has these concerns. But our ultimate hope is that you would affirm those men. I know John has fled to Florida, I think. I don't know if he, he wanted to uh, flee before we made this announcement, but he will be back, I trust. And Craig, of course, is here this morning. I hope you would affirm them and encourage them and praise God for them. Of course, you know, we talk all this about elders. Uh, there's one elder I, I left out, one pastor I left out. He's found in First Peter. And the Bible uh, says that after elders, pastor, the shepherd, the flock, and exercise oversight and be examples to the flock. In verse 3, it says, and when the chief shepherd or the chief pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you know who our, our chief pastor is? It's Jesus. He's your senior pastor. Jesus is. He is God. He is our Redeemer. He builds His church. All of us follow Jesus as He leads us and guides us. In fact, you see there that He has given us grace. Grace to you, verse 2, and peace from God our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have received His grace through the cross. And because of the grace which we have received, we who were once enemies with God have now been made with peace with God. He says, peace and grace with God. And I, I, look, I want to celebrate that peace and grace with you this morning in the Lord's Supper. What we're about to partake in is this meal is a, is a celebration of the unmerited favor in which we have received through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And that we have now have peace with God. We who were once in rebellion to him, we who have laid down our arms of rebellion and bowed our knee to King Jesus, now have peace with him. And we're going to celebrate that. I pray that as you hold these elements and you meditate, as you wait for us all to receive the elements, perhaps you would rejoice in the peace in which you have in God. Jesus Christ, when he was born, the angel said that he has uh, glory to God in the highest and peace upon whom his favor rests. Jesus, when he's going to the cross, he said, I'm going with peace. Jesus, the first word out of his mouth after he was raised from the dead is peace to you. You have peace with God. May you rejoice in that this morning as we hold these elements. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we ask that you would let these uh, plates pass by you discreetly. We don't want to be rude to you, but the Bible teaches us that this is a meal for Christians. And if you are not in a relationship with Jesus, we'd ask that you just simply let these pass these plates by in a moment as they come. As is our custom, uh, I want to give you a moment of silent prayer as you prepare your hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together.